0: Mustad is a family of companies and leading brands that are rich in heritage and tradition, servicing farriers and horse owners around the globe since 1832. At Delta Mustad Hoof Care Center, we take great pride in our vast offering of farrier supplies and our commitment to serve farriers with product research, educational clinics, sponsorships and a school program. We are the Hoof Care people and we're in the business of helping you the farrier and your customer the horse. Visit us at mustad.com to learn more about mustad products and locate a supplier near you. Welcome to the American Farriers Journal podcast. I'm Jeremy McGovern. In the interviews so far in our podcast, we've spoken to several farriers who've made lasting impacts on the industry. In this episode, we're talking with Lee Green. I think is one farrier who's had such an incredible influence on American farriery, and that's going back decades. In this episode, Lee shares stories about his career, the significance of his associations in the farrier industry, and his insight on shoeing mules.
1: Well, I grew up in a little town in central Utah, a place called Nephi, that's N-E-P-H-I, and uh, we always had horses. And so it was right from the very beginning, my dad always shod horses, and I always liked being with my dad. And so when I was big enough to hand him tools, that's what I did, and i never been away from it.
0: When did you eventually make your way to California?
1: I came to California in 1968. Prior to that, I went to Arizona in the early 60s and uh, worked in the north rim of the Grand Canyon and uh, shoeing horses and mules and packing and stuff there. And I was there for several seasons and and then eventually got to California in 68.
0: Yeah, let's go back to Arizona. Um, You know, a lot of people know you from from working with mules some of the articles you've you've written for american farriers journal and and until your son took away the title at mule days that uh you you drove the quickest nails into the shoes Mm -hmm. was it was it arizona where you first got your interest in mules almost when i was
1: a young teenager i used to ride a mule and uh, All my buddies had horses, and I always kind of figured I had a second-class animal, but I found out that uh, mine was the first class. But it was in the the Grand Canyon where I really learned to appreciate mules. When you really understand what they are and, and what you can do with them, then you really have a good liking for them and an admiration for them. That was the beginning.
0: What are some of those things that that you really liked about mules or that you learned about mules from those days?
1: Well, they're really so much more dependable, and that's why they are used in, let's say, tougher positions. You are used in the canyon because they, they go down in the canyon with, with tourists, and uh, I think that was more dish and the mules but they were so much more dependable there was times when we run short of mules to go into canyon we'd use horses and they did just as well because they were them to it but uh, and then packing you know when you put heavy loads on them and put them in a string and negotiate rough country mules have that knack and and there's so much more Dependable.
0: Yeah, like you said, dependable. Uh, what's the key to keeping them sound and keeping them working from the perspective of a farrier?
1: There's really no difference in horses. Uh, you just treat them like, treat them like horses. And um, it seems as though they handle rough stuff, rough terrain better. And you just, well, really don't have soundness problems with them that you may with a horse. And I think a lot of it has to do with uh, soul bruising and stuff where a, a foot, a mule's foot is a narrower or smaller and you just don't have that surface to have a problem with.
0: Can you talk about the types of shoes you'd use with mules?
1: Well, way back, uh, when I was shoeing in the Grand Canyon, uh, all those mules were shod with old Phoenix Mule shoes, and there again, that's what they had, and I think it was the idea that that's what they they thought that mules should have mule shoes, and uh, which isn't necessarily so when we get into the Sierras, a lot of the old diamond shoes diamond mule shoes was was used, but it was more work to a diamond mule shoe to a mule than it was to take a horseshoe and fit that to a mule. Most tools is easily shod with a horseshoe. And so that's what uh, what we went to in the Sierras. And it's just a lot easier. Anybody that's fit mules kind of knows and understands the, the shape of a mule's foot is not what, Everybody thinks it is. It's, it's just more of a, a narrower, longer foot that is easily fit with a horseshoe.
0: Why do you think it gets a perspective than uh, it's more difficult to work with or more of a difficult foot to work with? Is it just a misconception, you think? Well, To me, they're not more difficult.
1: Yeah. Now, see, if you're shoeing a horse, you fit that foot as, as a shoe is supposed to fit. You fit the foot. When you shoe a mule, you fit the foot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's no, it's no um, real mystery. Uh, you fit the foot. I went into Mammoth Lakes, and I I spent a couple of seasons there, uh, packing and and uh, in, in shoeing up there. We had about a hundred and 25 horses and mules that I kept shoes on. And uh, man, up there in that high country, the pack station was at 7,500 feet. And a lot of times we go up from there. It was a fantastic place to be and an enjoyable place to work. But uh, that one winter in between, I, I went over on the coast, uh, spent the winter. You know Morro Bay, and I spent a little time in Porterville, and then went back to the second season in the sierras and Then I needed to have a permanent place to live and i I was fortunate to be able to choose where I wanted to live
0: mm-hmm.
1: that's why we came to Uukaipa. You put a lot of thought into it there's a lot of places that would have been a lot more financially rewarding if I wanted to live there. But I did not want to live uh, toward the L.A. area, places like that. And I knew that the schools in Yukaipa was real good and that—I raised my three kids and they went to the Yukaipa high school, the Yucaipa schools. And so it was a trade-off. How do I say it? This is kind of blue-collar country, it isn't big-money places. And there was, When I came here, there really wasn't any places to work. It wasn't good stables. Uh, People didn't have uh, big dollar horses and stuff here. But that's what I chose because this is where I wanted to live, and I have been here since 1969.
0: Yeah, it's like you said, there's a trade-off. I think you're in a uh, more forward thinking than perhaps some others could be, Uh, and it was important for you to uh, put family first, Uh, but... Tell us a little bit about your practice that you had during that time.
1: Let me say, that, yes, I did put family first, and I did not want to be in a place where I had to fight traffic. You know, it'd be on a freeway. Uh, I didn't want to drive uh, long distances, and uh, so it, it's, this area has, has worked fine. But uh, when I came here. The area is full of western horses, quarter horses. There were uh, big thoroughbred ranches close by. The horse shows was mostly quarter horses. And then a lot of stuff involved into the the jumping horses. But I really made my living for many years doing the English-style horses, you know, the... uh, you know, the, the the jumping horses and English stuff. And uh, that's what I really enjoyed doing as far as, uh, you know, making a living. There were plenty of, I kind of hate to use the term, but backyard horses here, but they were some of the finest horses and finest customers that I'd ever had. But uh, it was the uh, the English horses where I made my living.
0: I know there will be some young people listening, people who are starting to establish or or haven't quite established a business yet. What advice do you have for determining where you want to live and, and what's most important to you?
1: Well, most will live where they have some kind of a connection. And so what they really need to do is do what the work is there you know if you're if you're in cowboy country like I grew up, you will shoe you know your your western style horses if you grow up in North Carolina, you'd probably be doing some walking horses and uh get up into Virginia, probably saddlebreds and you uh, get over into well illinois Indiana, then the harness horses but Few people I think has the opportunity to choose where they want to live and be and uh, so the type of horse that they will do will be dictated for them, but advice uh do the horses that are available and do the horses that you are most accustomed to, just do them and do them well and uh
0: you you make a living at it, you'll do okay. It's so we fast forward and and what year did you open your supply shop? I, I started
1: my supply shop in nineteen seventy three. Now, the reason for this was when I when I came here to Ukaipa I wanted a shop to where horses could be brought in and uh, shoe horses in the shop. So I built a, a nice place to do that. And I had a storeroom. And so that was the beginning of the supply business because I made that room into supplies and uh, it was difficult to get supplies in that day and time. And so I started stocking supplies and shoes and come by and, and stock up and buy their shoes. And it was because of the shop where I shot horses, it was trailer in, and i I could just stay there and work all the time and so I just continued with the supplies and then it grew out of it, and so I had to build another building you know in five years, I built another shop, and I made that work for another twenty one years and then I built this uh other shop, which right now I have about twenty thousand. Square feet of uh, space for the supply business.
0: Yeah, and uh, I know a lot of people on the West Coast know it, but maybe some of our other listeners don't. You also host—I I, what I've been to one of the biggest clinics, I think, in horseshoeing uh, every year in, in the winter.
1: Yes, we have a really a major clinic open house. It's always like the second Saturday in January and uh we have fed as almost 400 people at a at our clinic i always get one of our very top clinicians and uh it's really a good thing it's a good time of the year and uh i think here in california in this area there's uh, it's well attended there's plenty of uh, people to plenty of shoers to come and enjoy that. That's my favorite day of the whole year.
0: Going back to opening the supply shop, and I think a lot of people who who weren't around then or weren't shoeing then, we have such a sampling of supplies today, especially horseshoes. Uh, what was it like back then? Well, things were simple then. When
1: I started in the supply business, horses were shod with the Japanese or the Izumi horseshoes. They were readily available. We'd use some diamond shoes, but the price of those was a little, well, actually quite a little bit higher, and so most people used the Izumi shoes. Capel nails, frost knives, Nicholson rasps. You have some leather pads, some bar stock, coal, and you certainly didn't need much more than that that was very simple. Well, um, there are so many new things on the market that I never ever dreamed that there could possibly be. I never ever thought that you could take a aluminum egg wedge bar off the shelf. We used to have to make all of that. And uh, here, here in this, my shop, I have about thirty five hundred different kinds, and types, and styles, and manufacturers of horseshoes. Now that's a whole lot different than way back when, well, we had the Izumi and the Diamond. Now most of these shoes are duplicates, but being that the biggest part of what my business is, is I wholesale to other suppliers. And of course, you know, we have a good uh a farrier business, walk-in business. We we ship a lot of stuff to the uh, the farriers, but it's the it's the wholesale business that is the major part of what I do here. Well, you have to have all of those different kinds and types of shoes uh, because they will be ordered sometime uh, and and when you the customers want different things. So you have to have that different kind of stuff. Now there's certainly a lot more shoes than 3,500, but um, that pretty well does it. That's what we that's what we offer. Look at the kinds of horseshoe nails, uh, many many types and sizes, and then it gets into uh, the count, whether it's a hundred count box or 250 or 500. And so for each size of nail, then I mean, you've got Three different choices in the boxes. You know, rasps, pads. You've got many different kinds of pads. Now the Ferrier's Pride pads is my pad. That's my. Uh, I have those manufactured, and, and uh, so the the Ferrier's Pride is is really my name. And uh, we have many different kinds of pads, and then the tools. Uh, many different kinds of aluminum shoes. It uh, It's mind-boggling to see what you have to have for a supply.
0: So what's your best source for finding out about the new shoes war, or was it always your your customer input that drove what you'd carry or, or how you'd learn about new shoes or new products? Yes. Of course, see, I have attended
1: every... Uh, convention, clinic, seminar uh, that I could possibly get to around the country. So you see all of that. And uh, see, I competed for 23 years. And I went to every you know competition, and, and I really enjoyed that. To me, it was just a fantastic social affair. Well, you see all of these things, and then you get all of the um, uh, agents... Uh, Rips of the different manufacturers, and they want to talk to you and introduce their new shoes. Well, having the horseshoeing experience, I pretty well knew what kind of shoes would sell well, and uh, and then what your customers ask for is is what you what you will stock. So that's. Uh, once you get into it, and then also the advertisements. Now, like see the American Farriers Journal, all you have to do is pay attention to that, and you'll see what's on the
0: market. So over the years, you've seen a lot of products come and go. When you're looking at products, how do you differentiate between what's going to be a fad and what's going to have lasting power?
1: Well, it's your horseshoeing knowledge, your horseshoeing experience. Now, there's many of them right off the bat, you know, is not going to make it. There is some that say, wow, that's nice. I wish I'd have thought of that. But then also, there's many that I thought would be, do good, and I got fooled. And uh, so you just have to, have to try and see what the farrier wants to use.
0: You had mentioned uh, competition. I think a lot of people would also, when they think of Lee Green, they think of the AFA Tell us about your history with the AFA. Well, okay. Way back in the
1: early 70s, I saw in a magazine, it might have been the Western Horseman, a little small ad that said something about uh, the American Farrier Association, just a little, little small classified. And I didn't pay much attention to it, because I didn't know really what it was. Back at that time, we just didn't have associations, and we didn't know how to get together. But uh, I joined the American Fair Association in 1977. My number, AFA number, is 335. And there's only about 25 numbers smaller than mine, so that's, you know, a lot of longevity. But uh, once I went to the convention, I, I realized how beneficial it was to have it to where shewers could get together and exchange ideas and have lectures and demonstrations and contests, and I really saw how valuable that was. Walt Taylor was the beginning of the AFA, and then uh, knowing and, you know, meeting and knowing Walt for all of these years, you really understand his ideas and how important it is for the profession. There's just been an absolutely unlimited amount of knowledge passed around at the conventions. And look at all of the the people that has got together. And uh, it not only helps manufacturers, but uh, but And it's it's gone clear around the world. And uh, I have been to every convention
0: since 1977. Can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, I, I've, it seems that, you know, before Walt started the AFA, it didn't matter if you lived in Ukaipa or somewhere on the East Coast or somewhere else. Is it was pretty rare for farriers to get together uh, and share knowledge. Uh, what was it like in your area? Is that was that pretty accurate about not really? Oh yeah, exactly. Uh, you had your buddies, you had your friends
1: that 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 you knew, and uh, there was a lot of good relationships there, and you could help each other and so on. But uh, when you go to uh, go from ukaipa to a clinic in raleigh north carolina or something like that when you come home if you have paid attention you have learned something and then you have learned something that you can pass on to your buddies and and so on the the profession would not be where it is today if it weren't for our associations
0: when you were competing was it mainly at the convention or was it all around oh all around
1: I competed in, well, it was the very first competition in the AFA. It was in 1977 in Lakewood, Colorado. And uh, I think the last time I competed was, it seemed like it was in Lexington or something. But uh, it had gotten pretty big, and then uh, I never would practice. I'd never spend hours and days just hammering on iron and, and making shoes. I didn't have the time for it. Uh, I had a family to support. I had a couple of businesses to run. And I figured that if uh, if I couldn't just go do it, why well, I, uh, I probably shouldn't be doing it. And then I had a lot to do at the conventions, you know, the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And it was A bunch of meetings and committees and stuff like that and uh, that's when I quit competing at the AFA but I did compete in other stuff you know for another 10 years that was fun I I really enjoyed the competitions because it was a social thing and you were learning something and testing
0: yourself. Could you talk about that idea of testing yourself and, and how competition benefited you? If you can make some of these shoes,
1: learn in in working your iron. Uh, it gives you great confidence in uh, in what you do when you need to shoe horses. You know Calgary, for for instance, uh, it it got the point there. Their shoes was very technical, and it kind of had to be because there were many of the farriers coming from different places around the world. And then they had exact rules for this and in the, in the forging so that everybody understood what they was doing. Well, so you take any of those shoes and if you can make a shoe that meets all of the criteria for that contest, uh, you can make any kind of shoes. When you really realize what you do in the forging, there's only about, four things that you can do with the iron you know you can draw it you can upset it you can bend it you can pierce it you can weld it and if you can do that any of those things uh you you can make anything
0: yeah confidence is a huge part of the job there's you know the confidence for knowing what you're going to do with the horse and and confidence say with the owners and when you need to explain what you're doing did you see that immediately translate to your practice when you when you're competing and and easily recognize how that confidence grew in you?
1: Oh yes, yes, absolutely. Horse owners want a farrier that can do do the job. They want somebody that uh, that they have confidence in, and the the farrier has to have confidence. Uh, it, that does make a difference. Just a, a story. Jeremy, um, a bunch of years ago, back in the 70s, I was shoeing horses down in the San Diego area, and there was a couple of of guys there at this stable, Uh, this stable housed several hundred boarders, but they come to shoe a horse, and uh, the horse had bar shoes. Well, they tried and tried to make the bar shoes, and they did not have any success. And uh, so I told them, I said, guys, you know, two weeks ago we had a clinic, I don't remember exactly where it was, down there on the coast, in, um, there in California, and that really dealt with making... This making and shaping and forging and welding bar shoes. And they said, well, yeah, we we knew about it, but uh, we needed to go shoe these other horses and make some money. Well, uh, they couldn't make the bar shoes. And uh, they ended up going the old shoe pile and pulling out the old shoes that they'd pulled off and put them back on the horse. They'd have been... A lot better off if they had attended that clinic <laughs> and learned how to do that. And uh, I could have made the shoes for them, but I thought, well, that's not getting them out of their problem. Uh, they need to attend some clinics and, and learn some techniques. And, uh, of course, I don't know as I ever went back to that stable, but uh, I never saw the guys again. I don't know how they got along.
0: So, you know, through through competition, through associated with the other farriers, you, you grew confidence, you were able to build your skill set. What were the other ways that that you found were beneficial to, to your growth as a farrier? I think one of the big things
1: is doing, being a clinician and doing clinics. I started doing that, doing clinics, in uh, 1973. And back at that time, uh, it seems like everything was in quite a learning stage. And I was always willing to to stand up and talk and show about what I knew. And so, uh, I started the clinics in 1973 and the, the last clinics that I did before I said no more I'm done with that I I don't have the the stamina it takes to do that anymore it was in 2013 and so I was fortunate enough to go all over the country you know I just in Canada uh Mix in you know around the world, uh, South America, uh, Africa, Europe, uh, Japan, and you'd learn an awful lot when you're doing that. You know, some repetition with it, some you know practice with it, and uh, and realize that you are doing a lot of good for other younger farriers coming along. That's something that really adds to your, your abilities.
0: Yeah. What were some of the things that you picked up, uh, over the years by doing clinics?
1: Oh gosh, that's probably most of what I ever knew. Anytime that you were able to watch the judges, and get judges' opinions, you know, either over where horses would have been shod or the forging or stuff like that and looking at looking at the horses as shod and seeing the differences in them, all you have to do is remember that and say, I am going to incorporate that into my practice. The same thing with the forging. You look at uh, the shoes. usually have an opportunity to see the shoes when, uh, you know, after they're judged. And look at them. And you'll see why there's winners and some that's yet to be winners. Just think, well, I wish I'd have done it that way. Now I'm going to do this next time and so on. Anytime that you have an opportunity to... Listen to a clinician, watch a clinician work, and uh, really pay attention to what is being taught uh, I think with with that is so much of what I just incorporated to what i what I did made me a better shoe every time I went to <clears throat> uh
0: getting uh going back to the a f a you know, you mentioned all that you're involved with, but you you also help uh, bring the Japanese shoers over uh, from from the school and uh, can you talk about the relationship you've built over the years with uh, uh, Japan?
1: Yeah, I'm particularly proud of that Jeremy. Um, in about 92 they came to me and asked if I would go to Japan and uh, do some clinics instead of there um prior to that they had had uh some different farriers come here and compete in our convention well you got a language problem and uh i'd see these guys compete and uh nobody talked to them uh I wasn't even sure that they knew what the rules was. Uh, they'd come here and get some equipment, and it'd be something that somebody had out in their truck that wasn't used anymore—some pretty ratty anvil benches and and forges and stuff like that. And I was as guilty as everybody else because I didn't jump in and talk with them and, and uh, you know associate with them and ask them anything if there's anything that uh, they needed or anything we could do. Well, they asked me to go there to help them. And uh, it, it, both the forging and the shoeing, and so the the first time I went, I was gone for a couple of weeks. I did for different clinics around Japan. Now, I'll tell you, there's some good shoeers there. I, I was very amazed at, uh, uh, at their abilities. Uh, they're, they're not in any way second class. But uh, and then they asked me to come back two years later. And in all, I went to Japan four times throughout the 90s. But after that first time, I realized some of the problems that they had when they'd come to the convention, and that was equipment and and so on. And So I told them, I will furnish you your equipment to compete. So in all these years I've taken everything that they need except their hand tools. And uh that's one reason why I have always driven to the conventions. I have to take a big trailer sometimes as many as 6 sets of forges and anvils and so on. And uh so when you get to know these people, uh they're just fantastic friends. Uh Really, some good relationships that we we have had, and I've I've certainly enjoyed it. There's been several of the competitors, Japanese competitors, that has uh, placed and you know got ribbons and stuff in some classes, and there was one that uh, made the shoeing that's done through all the points and the forging and so on. But uh, as of uh, now, the American Farriers Association. Furnish will furnish all of the equipment for the competitors to compete Um, they have purchased 20 sets of everything and then they will do it in rounds, there's always more than 20 and so I won't be transporting a lot of forges and anvils across the country anymore because the AFA has, has all of their own but my relationship with with the japanese has really been outstanding you see some of these guys that's uh, a couple of years out of their school and they come over here and they compete and they do a, a outstanding job with it so pretty proud of the guys and uh always enjoy seeing them when they come to the convention
0: you know there's another thing i'm going to another subject i'll bring up in a second that's related to this but I think looking back is you're, you're very, very much sharing information or the sharing of information has been an important part of you, of your career. And I'd say, you know, where you noticed that, that maybe people weren't helping them out, you saw the opportunity. And I think that's, it seems like that's a very common theme throughout your career from being yeah. a clinician and, and so on. Yeah, I
1: think so. my idea of that is if there's anything I can possibly do to help somebody else, and largely, you know, we might refer to the young guys coming along, anything I can do to help them better living, take care of their family better, and make their work and their life easier, uh, I have had more enjoyment doing that. Than I think anything else that I've done.
0: What's the what advice do you have for building that balance between work and family, especially in those early years when you know there, there's more of a push, I think, or more of an acceptance among younger farriers to do more horses in a day than and is probably probably what they should. <laughs> Boy, was I guilty of that. You know, to me, family comes first.
1: And uh, I know that I worked too much, too hard, too long, but it was to take care of the family. And then uh, in the early seventies, I had a special problem, let's say, that my wife Charlotte had her first old heart surgery. Now, I really had no insurance at that time. I did have a little bit, but it really didn't cover much of anything. And so I was forced, let's say, in my mind, to go out and work as much as I possibly could and and bring home as much money as possible. And uh, that became particularly difficult to try and balance something at that time. Eventually, why we got through it, and eventually she had three more open-heart oh. surgeries. And uh, and then raising three kids, boy, I had to work. But I grew up with that. You know, where I grew up in, 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 in Utah, that was, uh, you worked. You know, uh, you will have a, you will end up with a good work ethic. And I had that. But uh, the family comes first, and and as as time has gone on, I think most everybody would would agree with this. But issue less horses and charge more money. That would have been a lot easier if I'd have had that ability back in the 60s, 70s, and stuff. But uh, if you set your schedule for a reasonable day's work. You throw in a few trims, you've got a, uh, a good day's work. Uh, and, and don't do like I used to do and shoe, well, if it took 10 or 12, why well, that's, that's what you did. Uh, you will last a lot longer. You won't have to shoe so many horses. You'll be able to choose better horses to shoe You'll get. You can get better customers, and uh, your body'll last longer. Your mind'll last longer, and uh, then you can prepare yourself for a, a long shoeing career. A lot of people just wear out, and and then they're kind of in trouble financially. I don't know if that answers your question, but
0: uh, well, yeah, and that that seems to be a tough thing too. Is not only making it so you can last long enough in the career because there are a certain number of horses, as the saying goes, in, in every farrier, but being able to plan for retirement on top of that because someday, and it may not be when you want to choose it, you could see your career come to an end.
1: Well, that happens a lot. Uh, you know, being here in the shop all the time and, and knowing hundreds of not thousands of farriers it is very common for me to see farriers that is wore out, got some age on them, they can't do what they used to, and they have nothing to retire on. Now that's tough, that's really tough. Believe me, that is more common than not. When you see really the successful farriers are those that have some kind of a retirement plan. Uh, saving money investing money and not only that uh, being a successful farrier it, it was is one that does not let's say get in debt does not purchase things that is not necessary such as big fancy trucks boats uh, spending your money somewhere else that but you you can't hold on to is not going to come back to you. And uh, you need a cushion. Uh, a man that I worked for in the Sierras that owned the pack outfit up there he told me what you need everybody needs is a year's income in savings all the time. And so not only it's, it's a discipline Of saving but also if you get hurt or something like that you have a year's income there and uh, it took me quite a while before I was able to do that but uh, it's mighty comforting when you have some savings and not overspend you don't need a truck every couple of years you know
0: yeah I think uh, too like you said, it's tough to build that discipline, but once that discipline becomes a habit, it becomes, I guess, second nature and uh, will carry you through uh, through the rest of your career. Yes, absolutely.
1: Uh, no matter what you're doing, remember back when that kind of depression hit us, many people had overspent, over um, extended themselves, and especially in the in the housing market, vehicles and stuff like that. They were in debt and uh, things changed, and uh, many people got hurt pretty seriously with it. In dealing with, uh, you know, with the customers and and them talking about horse owners, where they, you know, their customers are shoeing the horses. Well, customers couldn't afford those horses. And uh, so it kind of put everybody in trouble.
0: The other thing I wanted to bring up from your uh, history and uh is the farrier industry association and maybe a lot of farriers don't know this group exists as the trade organization for suppliers and manufacturers and uh you're one of the the original members of the group can you talk about the fia
1: yes i think that's a that's a good a good thing along in uh well, it really started in uh, 1979 when we first had a convention in Fresno, California. And uh, in doing this, we'd planned for a little bit of room for a, um, a marketplace, a place where manufacturers, etc., could display their wares. And so through the Early part of the 80s, uh, that was done, but it was really quite haphazard. And it was dependent on the board of directors from the American Fair Association. It was just another duty for them to set up and uh, make this work at a convention. And with the help of some of our veterans, uh, Scott Colson, Bob Shantz, a number of them had, had talked and about uh, we need to form an, a group that can handle this themselves, have their own in-house thing and take all of this extra work from the board of directors of the American Farrier Association. And so in 1986 in Jackson, Mississippi, we all got together and uh, had meeting talking about pro and con and so on. Well, that is when the farriers industry was uh, started and it was uh, largely with the help of uh, Scott Colson from Jackson, Mississippi but uh, so it is an association that works together to put together the marketplace and so it's pretty well uh, orchestrated and uh, how do I say it? Still, the, the AFA is uh, is the father of it. But uh, so anybody can uh, come to the convention and and have a marketplace table. And but most most are members members is what keeps it going. And uh, that's one of the biggest uh, draws, one of the biggest attractions at a at a convention.
0: The the camaraderie and the membership of it.
1: Oh, gosh, yes. And then if you want to see something new, if you want to see a new product or a product that you want to learn more about, you can go to the marketplace, and there will be somebody there at their table that can help you with it, talk about their products, tell you how to use things, and and so on. And so it's... uh, a fantastic educational experience at the convention
0: on the other side of that you know as somebody sitting on the other side of that that table, do you find it beneficial getting feedback from customers
1: you're always looking for the feedback a a good let's go say a good salesman listens more than he talks and uh, so you're always listening to other people's ideas, opinions, experiences. That's part of your big benefit from attending or or being at the
0: marketplace. What's the sort of feedback that you you want to get from your, your customers? Well, you will listen to
1: especially any negative comments about a particular product. Now, you'll always get that, but when it's in abundance, well, it makes you think just a little bit. What can I do to make my product better? And then also in marketing, how can I market my product better? And then also when you get those that uh, how do I say it really likes your product and, and gives you information how it, it's done better for them. You know, where they've got the the most use or best uh, out of his, their, your products.
0: Okay. Well, I think that's all that I have, Lee. I, I kept you on. You, you've you done good
1: with uh, uh, making some notes so we can talk about, but uh, let me just throw in some stuff. Yeah. Um, I, I started shoeing horses when I was 13 years old. And uh, I had uh, heated shoes. And I told dad, I need shoes on that horse. And he says, well, who's going to ride it? And I says, well, I am. He says, well, then you shoe it. I said 13. That's not true. It was 11. 11 years old. It was 13 when my son Porter started shoeing. He set out all his equipment and left me. Left me all alone to shoe that horse. It was about the simplest horse you could possibly shoe. Its feet was wore down, it had the, just a good classic shaped feet. it was gentle and uh he left me just so that I' work out myself and I didn't have somebody looking over my shoulder and It took me a number of years to realize the value in in him just leaving me alone but uh I shot my own horses and and dad's horses and stuff till I was about. 15, and then Dad would sh- send me out to shoe those horses. But a big part of that is I started shoeing horses because I wanted to eat. <laughs> times was tough, and times was hard at that time. To shoe a horse, my well, gosh, you know, that was that was a pretty good benefit. And uh, I uh, enjoyed that, and I've never never quit. You know, in a few years, I went into the Grand Canyon and, and shot... There and uh, you know, and then the, the, that's been my life, that's been my whole thing. I, I quit shoeing, it's hard to you know, kind of pinpoint, but basically, I shot horses for about 55 years, and, uh, and then my, my shop here kind of pushed me out of it. I had just too much here to do at the shop, and uh, then when you have employees and, and uh, staff. You kind of need to be around to uh, help them. And then uh, I was kind of wearing out at that time, and and so I, yeah. I quit showing, And uh, I've been able to do all kinds of horses. About the only horses that I really didn't have much experience with is harness horses and breads. Uh, you know, I've done everything else. It's been a very rewarding extremely rewarding career Uh, I have been able to do it my way and uh, I've seen the world because of it and if you really put your heart into what you're doing for a living why uh, it'll work out very uh, successful for you several weeks ago now my son Porter most everybody knows Porter he has never done anything in his life except shoe horses He's never had any other kind of uh, occupation. And uh, awful handy boy, I always had him with me when when he was just little, like I did with my dad, and just big enough to hand me tools and keep me company. But uh, and they needed him to go into the uh, into the Sierras and hew a bunch of horses and mules to to get this uh, season started and uh he was very limited with time because he had to be back here to make other commitments so in less than 2 days he did 41 head which is kind of unmerciful but he did he did 41 head and when he was really uh beat and tired and so on i said to him uh something like have you have you ever been Sorry that you took up this uh, this profession, knowing how he was hurt, hurting and tired and and frustrated. And he said, "Well, yes, I have been kind of questioning why I did this." And then he big smile. He says, "But not for very long." <laughs> 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 and uh, so he's had a had a very good. Uh, uh, life at shoeing horses and had the experience to do all kinds just like you know we always did when we was working together uh see, what else would i uh
0: would i talk about uh, i have to imagine you know you have a lot of proud accomplishments but but seeing your son shoe and and be successful at it and following your steps and, and also uh, beating your record at m- the mule days. That, that's that got to rank way up there at the top, I'd imagine. Oh,
1: yes, With, without a doubt. Uh, Porter is very handy. Uh, he can do anything. He thinks things through. And uh, he has some particular rules that he lives by. One is always... Be aware of what can happen now. When you think about that, that's that's something that everybody should do. If you're going to do something, think it through mm-hmm. whether it's hooking up a truck to a trailer or uh, uh, driving all night or uh, whatever and. Uh, He's very handy, uh, you know. I have kind of a machine shop too here with all of the the stuff that I manufacture, and uh, he knows how to run all of that kind of equipment, uh, welding, etc. But uh, he's uh, so much more handy in his abilities than I ever was when I was that age. But uh, he's the perfect guy for dealing with horses and dealing with the customers in the farrier business. Oh gosh, there's lots of experiences and a lot, lot of advice, experience and advice that I would uh, certainly offer to someone, but uh, when, you, when you're shoeing horses, it, you, you do the best job you can, treat the horse owners with much respect. That is something that they always look forward. They look not look forward. You look. It um, helps they evaluate you. Now, realistically, in shoeing horse, there is really not much difference in the way that horses are shod. Now, I'm talking about in in the uh, in the realm of shoers that's making a living at it, and uh, it has some has some uh, experience, not much difference in the way horses are shod, but the reason that some are more exce- uh, um, reason that some are more successful has to do with their ability to deal with the customers. and um, that's why they may charge more money they may be more popular uh you know I have I have a lot more work is because they are better salesmen and if if you keep that in mind it it'll certainly help your showing business
0: does that make sense yeah and does it go back to what you said before about working the booth at a trade show uh being a good salesman is uh How much of being a good salesman as a farrier is is being the better listener than the talker?
1: Absolutely correct. Absolutely. And uh, I get a lot of calls here in the office and uh, horse owners calling and wanting to know where they can get a horseshoe and how they complain about the last one. They didn't like this one because of such and such. And it is almost never that they complain about the work that is done on the horse. It has some type of a personality conflict. I remember one, one lady complained about one farrier because he wouldn't look me in the eye. <laughs> <laughs> you know, now, that's a, quite a way to choose a farrier.
0: I'd like to thank Lee for giving us his time, and I'd also like to thank Delta Mustad Hoofcare Center for sponsoring this podcast. If you have any questions or comments on this episode, please post them on the podcast page at AmericanFarriers.com slash podcast. Until next time, thanks for listening.